So starting at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him, who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Matt. Um, you, uh, just going back to Matt's prayer, you heard him pray for uh, Resurrection Church. That's a, a sister church of ours, a PCA church in Ottawa, who uh, it's, a, it's a mission church, much like we are. And for the last while, Ben Jollis, the pastor there, had been training men for, uh, for leadership as elders. And then those men were examined at our Presbytery meeting on Friday, and they did a fantastic job. Uh, really, uh, really, really wonderful to witness their faith and their knowledge, and uh, they were, uh, they passed their examination, and uh, therefore, uh, very soon, Resurrection Church in Ottawa will be what's called particularized. It's a Presbyterian word that means basically it's no longer a mission church, it's a, an organized individual, and we're working toward that too, slowly but surely. Uh, another great piece of uh, news from that, uh, that meeting was that um, KW Redeemer's pastor, that's an independent, currently an independent reformed church in Kitchener, their pastor Paul Dunk sustained his examination for ordination and so he is going to be received as a, uh, a minister or pastor, a teaching elder technically is what it's called in our, in our denomination as well and then uh, his elders will be at a later date examined and that church will come into the PCA as well, which means that we'll be having uh, more and more churches uh, that are like us, sister churches, reformed gospel teaching churches, dotting uh, southern Ontario. And that's a really exciting thing to be part of. So for those of you who don't know a lot about that, I'm just letting you know what's up so you can learn a little bit more about the group of churches that we are a part of. Anyway, 
Um, we're going to have a look here together at Acts chapter 8 and the story of uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. The lighting in here is bad, eh? Or am I just like an old guy now and that's, that's what we complain about when you're old. You complain about the lighting everywhere you go. Anyhow, I do have some notes that I'm going to try to follow, but it's hard to see. And my Bible, but it just, it's hard to read. So if I fumble and bumble a little bit, that's partly why I, I did prepare for this. Um, we've been talking about, in, uh, as we've been looking at, at the book of Acts, we've been talking about what, what was it about this early church that made it grow the way it did. There was something unique about it. That obviously, the power of the Holy Spirit had come upon this church in, in, in a remarkable way, and it grew exponentially in a relatively hostile culture, by the way, a culture that was not interested in hearing uh, about this Jesus who was Lord of all. This was a pagan culture. This was a very multicultural culture and a very multi-religious culture, and this group of people who started saying that Caesar was not God, but Jesus was God, uh, actually gained traction, and their message was received by people, and the church grew exponentially so that within only a few centuries, Christianity did become the dominant religion in the Western Hemisphere, uh, or the Western world, and you and I are living off the avails of, of many of the blessings of that incredible growth that happened in those early centuries. And we're trying to figure out what, what were these marks of that early church that made it so attractive to people. The church, the early church, was like no institution the world had ever seen before because it was this remarkably inclusive community. It's interesting that, that people today actually argue that Christianity is kind of exclusive and narrow, and that's one of the problems they have with it. The reality is, though, if you understand Christianity, first of all, the reality is, is that exclusivity exists everywhere. There is no group of people that is not exclusive in some way, shape, or form. Even the most so-called inclusive people have to be exclusive because they include those who think very inclusively as they do, and therefore those who don't think like they do aren't included, and so you have a distinction right there the, between the ins and the outs. Uh, so first of all, this idea that, that, that inclusivity uh, is, is the, the way to go and exclusivity is something to be avoided, it's actually kind of naive because you cannot help but be exclusive in some way uh, to some degree. But the charge is, is that rightly, you discover that uh, back then and even today of all the communities that we have around the world where exclusivity is inevitable, the Christian community ought to be and can be and actually in many places is the most inclusive, exclusive community that you will find. That's the thesis that I want to prove to you this morning as we go through this passage together. So what we're going to look at here, I don't know why, but I just feel like I want to go up here. I, usually I want to be really close to you, but for some reason I want to come up here because I can really see you well when I'm up here. I hope you don't mind that I do that. Um, we're going to look at the breadth of uh, God's love and the depth of God's love and see how that unique combination was something that just caused the church to explode as, um, as an institution many, many centuries ago. Okay, here we go. First of all, let's look at the breadth of God's love as shown in this passage. 
oftentimes people look at this passage and they say, well, this is a great example of one individual's search for God. And there is a component of that in this story because, you know, you see him studying the Bible, you see that he's been on this spiritual pilgrimage. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes. But actually, the more you read it, the more carefully you read it, you discover that this is actually a story of God's search for one individual man. In verse 26 of the passage, it says this. Now, the angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So, Philip was in Samaria, and by the way, he had a pretty good ministry going there. He had a pretty good evangelistic ministry going with a lot of fruit being born. And all of a sudden, God says uh, through an angel, I want you to leave and go down this road. And so then in verse 28, it continues on, and it says this. And he was returning, seated in... Was it verse 28 I want? No, it's verse 27 I want. Okay, so he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. And then in verse 29, the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip is walking down this road. The spirit says to him, hey, there's a chariot over there. I want you to go up to that chariot and check it out. And of course, uh, Philip does this. And Philip runs up to this chariot. And I don't, I don't really know how fast these chariots were going, but, you know, you, you, you picture these stories in your mind, right? So you're, I'm picturing Philip. He's like, hey, what you reading? Right? And it's kind of a comical picture, at least in my mind anyway. And, and, and this guy stops and he tells him, Philip, away from Samaria to this road in Gaza, it was God who said, see that chariot, I want you to go to that specific chariot. I'm sure there were, there were other people walking along this road or other uh, horses being along this road or whatever, and it was that one specific chariot that God told Philip to go up to. And lo and behold, he tells him the gospel. He explains what this man is reading from Isaiah. And this guy becomes a follower of Jesus Christ and he gets baptized. That's the end of the story. But, you know, this is a story actually of God hunting down the Ethiopian eunuch. And every Christian understands that story intuitively. Every Christian understands the the words of that old hymn that says, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew He moved my soul to seek Him seeking me. Every Christian can look back on their relationship with God and they can realize that that really, you know, in all their searching and all their discovering, etc., at the end of the day, it was not so much them searching God, but it was God searching them. This guy, he didn't understand Isaiah. He needed the Holy Spirit. It was going nowhere. It was leading nowhere, absolutely, until God chose to search him out. And this is the testimony of the Bible, okay? In Romans chapter, th- uh, Romans chapter 3, it says something really flattering about human beings. Listen to what it says. It says, no one is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That's the Bible's testimony about the human heart. Every Christian will tell you that, that, that they may have uh, had experiences that caused them to question what their meaning in life was, or they may have had crises in their lives that, called, that caused them to kind of uh, uh, 
give up on their own strength and their own abilities to, to figure out their problems and just sort of cast themselves on the mercy of God. But every one of them will tell you at the end of the day, it wasn't because they were more humble than somebody else. It wasn't because they were better educated than somebody else. It wasn't because they were more open-minded than somebody else that they are a Christian. If they look back at their own testimony, they have to conclude, I am a Christian completely and utterly because of the grace of God. Because for some reason, God in His infinite wisdom that I cannot comprehend that I will never be able to fathom, way back in time, he decided that he wanted me as one of his own. And so he hunted me down. Now, I know that raises all kinds of questions. For those of us who know and love people who aren't believers, and maybe we've even shared our faith with, with, uh, with non-Christians, we, we struggle with this idea that how come, well, what about this person? How come they don't believe? Are you telling me that they don't believe? It's, it's God's fault that they don't believe? I know that those questions arise. I will happily talk to you after the service about any of those questions. But for the sake of right now, here's what I want you to think about. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, the reality that you are saved entirely and completely by the grace of God, and it's not because you are humble or smart or open-minded, but it's because he somehow allowed you to believe in him. He hunted you down and dragged you kicking in streets, screaming into his beautiful grace. It should make you the most humble, the most joyful and the most patient person on the planet. There's nothing in you that makes you more deserving of a relationship with God than someone else. And therefore, those people that are in your life that perhaps have not, what I like to call, bitten down on Jesus, like they haven't bitten down on him and said, you know what, yes, I give my life to him and I submit myself to him. Those people, the only difference between you and them, the only difference is God has shown you that grace and he has not yet shown it to them. And so I know you can get frustrated, right? You're like, oh, come on, like I've been trying and trying and trying and I'm frustrated with you, God, and I'm frustrated with you, person. I'm frustrated. And I trust me as as. I, I, I get frustrated. I can get extremely frustrated. But the reality is, is that I should, I should be patient. I should be humble and I should be joyful. And you see, the early church had these characteristics. This is why, okay, this is why it was so attractive to the pagan world around them. Here were all these pagans growing up in a, in a, in a multi-religious culture where they believed that the way that they were going to earn the favor of God, the way they were going to have a good life, the way they were going to escape punishment or, or experience transcendence or get to heaven or find their way to Valhalla or whatever, it all depended on some form of their performance. It depended on them being courageous in battle. It depended on them doing the right sacrifices. It meant, depended on them observing the proper high holy days. It and then they discovered this faith where all they had to do was they had to accept, receive what Jesus had done for them in their place, and it was the most freeing thing in the world to them. Finally, they could get off that stupid treadmill of performance and rest in the love of God 
accomplished by someone else. God pursued him. Now, who is this guy that God pursued? Because we're still talking a little bit about the, the breadth, okay? It's really interesting. Um, you know, people today that... I hear this sometimes. Um, Christianity is for a certain kind of person. It's a white people's religion, or it's a wasp religion, or it's a poor people's religion, or it's an uneducated people's religion, or it's a Western religion. It's a European religion. But what about this guy? Who is this guy? Well, first of all, he's an Ethiopian. Uh, now, it's not the Ethiopia that you and I think of. It's actually, he was probably from modern-day Sudan. And he was likely uh, from the city of Khartoum in Sudan, which was about 2,400 kilometers away from the city of Jerusalem. Okay? It's at the end of the world. And it actually was at the end of the Roman Empire of the time. The Roman Empire ruled much of the known world at the time, and the city of Khartoum was right on the outskirts of that, okay? So he was, he was a black North African male, but he was also wealthy. He had a chariot. Uh, chariots were pretty rare, uh, obviously, back then. How in the world could he afford to have a chariot to take him from Khartoum all the way to Jerusalem? Well, we read that he was uh, a very high-ranking officer in the government of Candace. That means that he was elite. That means that he was educated. He was reading the scroll to Isaiah. You know how few people could read back then? And how few people actually could have scrolls of any kind of literature, let alone a scroll of the Old Testament in their possession. So he was wealthy, and he came to believe in the gospel. And the truth about Christianity is this. There are no racial, there are no ethnic, there are no cultural centers to the Christian faith. If you look around the world's great religions, you'll see that they all have a geographical and cultural center. So Hinduism is geographically in slash uh, uh, Chinese and, and, and South Asian believers in all these religions in all kinds of places around the world, but the centers of those faiths are very, very much those ge geographic regions, and obviously Judaism, it's Israel. Christianity is the only world faith that has a, a geographical uh, center that's always moving, it seems, and never seems to have one cultural center. Let me just demonstrate that to you this way. For example, in the year 1900, there were about 9 million Christians in the continent of Africa. By the year 2000, there were 380 million Christians on the continent of Africa. Christianity is growing seven to ten times faster than the population in Africa, and it's growing four times faster than Islam on the continent of Africa. In the Anglican Communion, which is the worldwide Anglican church, if you were to picture a typical Anglican believer in today's world, what would you picture? Probably a white Brit, right? Wrong. It's a 35-year-old Nigerian woman. Because the Anglican Communion and other churches, especially Pentecostalism, have been growing like wildfire in the in uh, Africa. How about this? In 2010, 
there were about 60, there was estimated to be about 68 million Christians in China. Since 2010, or sorry, no, since 1978 actually, Christianity has been growing by 10% a year on average, so that the projections is that by the year 2030 AD, there will be more Christians in China than in the United States. And by 2050, estimates uh, say that Christianity, or that China will be a Christianity majority or Christian majority country. That is astounding. It's astounding. And in fact, it explains one of the reasons for the extreme backlash that the Christian church in, Af in China sorry, is facing right now. This is happening all over the world, friends. In India, Christianity is growing so fast that, that, that uh, the Indian government finally had to crack down on, on Christian non-governmental organizations entering India for the purpose of not only tied to Indian culture, that if too many, Christian, too many Indians convert to Christianity, they'll lose their Hindu culture. Latin America, rich and poor, it's all over the world. There is no geographic center, there is no cultural center to the Christian faith. And the question is why? And the answer to that is, is that after being rejected by his own culture. John chapter 1, what does it say? It says, he came to his own, but his own received him not. And even though they rejected him, he went to the cross and he died on that cross anyway so that any one of them, if they would repent and put their trust in him, they could be called children of God. And that is the same truth whether you're Jewish or from India or from Germany or from Peru or from Canada or from New Guinea. Because it's a gospel of grace. It's available to all. This is the breadth. This is what the early church shared with the world. And this is what the pagan culture discovered and said, Oh my, finally, I can be in. Now, the depth. That's the breadth of God's love. Now, the depth of God's love. This gets better, okay? Who is this guy? Now, this man quotes, he's reading Psalm 73, right? That's, that's the famous passage in, sorry, Isaiah 53. Psalm 73, where's that from? Isaiah 53 is what he's reading. He's reading a passage from Isaiah 53, which is a very famous passage in Isaiah's prophecy. It's called the prophecy of the suffering servant. And he's reading Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears, he was silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Now he reads that. Philip asks him, do you get what you're reading? He says, no, I don't understand this. Philip explains that this passage was not about himself, but it was about the, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who had come, and the man gets converted. Why? Why did that message convert this guy? We have to understand the context of this man. What brought this man to this moment? Remember, he's successful, he's an elite, he's in the government of Candace, and he's on top of the world, he's an absolute success, but he paid a huge price to get there because we read that he is a eunuch. Now, the reason he was a eunuch was because in ancient uh, courts of kings, 
um, in order for men to, to be safe, to be close to the family, uh, the royal family, they would have to be castrated. That was the way that the sovereign made sure that, that they wouldn't uh, get into any trouble with one of the, the family members. And I know we would say that that's barbaric. This guy had to be castrated in order to, to reach his, uh, his career goals. But it isn't all that different from today. There are all kinds of people who are castrating themselves in all kinds of ways in order to reach their career goals. There are people who are sacrificing family, they're sacrificing friendships, they're sacrificing their own mental health in order to achieve the career goals that they're after. So it's not all that crazy because of what it says in verse 27. It says in verse 27 that this guy had come to Jerusalem to worship. So he had gone well over 2,000 kilometers on a spiritual pilgrimage in order to come to the temple of Jerusalem. And I'm sure that when he said to Candace or whomever, he said, I, I'd like a, can I get like a three-month leave because I want to go on this spiritual pilgrimage because I want to I find some more truth or something like that, that, that they would have said, what do you mean they're a wife? And that's not all that strange to us. You hear stories all the time of people who have made it to the top and then they discover, boy, it's very lonely at the top. You know, I, I now have achieved everything I wanted. Boris Becker, he was two-time uh, Wimbledon champion, was the youngest Wimbledon champ in the history of uh, tennis. He was um, on top of his game. He was, he was rich beyond his wildest dreams, and he was suicidal. Because he's like, what's this all for? I have everything I could ever want, and I'm still empty inside. Jack Higgins, he wrote... He wrote uh, um, one of the most popular novels in uh, popular American literature the, e literature, the Eagle Has Landed. Some of you may be familiar with that book. He was asked in an interview, what do you wish you knew back when you were young that you know now? He says, when you make it to the top, there's nothing there. This kind of loneliness exists in people. And so he had come all this way to finally find some sort of satisfaction for his soul, but it says that he's on his way home. And each and every scholar I consulted said the same thing, that he was almost certainly, when he got to the temple, 2,400 kilometer chariot trip, okay? This is not like you and I driving, even in a lousy like Toyota Corolla with really bad suspension. This is in a chariot on mud roads, 2,400 kilometers. He gets to Jerusalem. He finally shows up at the temple, and he hopes to get in, and he is told by the priests, you're not welcome here. Because he was a eunuch. Because he was physically mutilated. Because he was a sexual deviant. And everybody knew that the impure, the sexual deviants, the mutilated, the lepers, and etc., that they were not allowed into the presence of God. They were dirty, they were unclean, they were defiled. And so now he's on his way home, having not discovered what he was hoping to discover, having not experienced what he was hoping to experience. And he's reading in this scroll in Isaiah, and he's in the area of the 50s, okay? So he's, in, he's reading Isaiah 53 now, but he's probably been searching all through that scroll for a while, and there's no doubt that he had come upon Isaiah chapter 56 at one point, where it says this in verses 3 through 5 of Isaiah chapter 56. Listen to this. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. 
And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut In ancient cultures, family is more important than anything else because it is through family that your name continues. It is through your family that your legacy continues. You have children so that your name goes on and on and you are remembered down through history. You have a legacy. And he had to give that up when he became a eunuch. He would never have that. He was cut off. And now he's being told that somehow there's a way into God where he can have a name that will last forever and he will never, ever, ever be cut off. And he wonders, how in the world is that possible? And then he reads these words from Isaiah 53. His life is taken away from the earth. Justice and, and he somehow can be made right with God through this sermon. He goes, he goes to Philip, who is this guy? What's he talking about? And then Philip says, then Philip, it says in verse 35, I think, Yep, verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. He told him about this Jesus who came into this world to live for us, to die for us, to sacrifice himself for us as a substitute. He stood in the Ethiopian eunuch's place. He was made unclean. He was cut off so that he could be brought in. And when that penny drops, his search is over. And he says, with joy. It says at the end that, now this is weird, eh? Verse 38, 39. Um, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. Now, most of us are thinking about how, what was that like? Like, did, did Philip teleport? Maybe like just disappeared into thin air. But it says that the man went away rejoicing. He didn't go, ah! Like, wouldn't you go, you're walking up out of the water, oh, Philip, that was awesome. That was the best baptism I've ever had. Where did he go? Where did he go? Freak right out. It says he went away rejoicing because his heart had been so over. It's overflowing with joy at his new experience, at this, this new relationship that he has with God being brought into him, brought into relationship with him. That his search was finally over. See, what do we do with this now, okay? So those are the two points. There is, there is, a, there is a breadth of God's love and there is a depth to God's love. What do we do with that? Well, in one sense, you know, we got to remember that conversion is a one-time act. This man was converted, and some of you maybe here this, this afternoon are not converted because you're still in that place where you have not found satisfaction in your soul. You're searching for it. Maybe you're searching for it by sacrificing all kinds of things in order to be successful academically, in order to be successful financially, in order to be successful socially, even having, you know, having a romantic relationship or having children, having, having success sort of 
familially, if I can use that term, you're looking for it. My appeal to you is to see what this, this man has learned, that this sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf can provide for you that identity that you are so desperately lurking for. It is there. And this is what caused an entire society to, 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 be, to be overwhelmed by a tsunami of grace. But it also means a second thing. It means that every one of us needs to be reconverted. This room is full mostly of Christians, I'm assuming. And so everything that I've told you is, as my wife likes to tell me when I asked her how was the sermon, you're getting a good reminder. But you just reminded me of the gospel. Because you and I, we need an ongoing conversion ourselves. If you're a believer, you know that you have a temptation to find your identity in all kinds of other things as well. You're no different than an unbeliever except in this, that you have found an ultimate new identity in Jesus Christ. And every time you are tempted to find it somewhere else, you can go back to that gospel and remind yourself of who you are in Jesus Christ and you can find a renewed sense of that, that, that peace that comes from knowing you have nothing to prove to anyone and you can rest in that again and again and again and again and again and that's the Christian life going back to it over and over and over again why do you think Paul says in Galatians chapter 2 it is no longer I who live for I have died and Christ lives in me why do you think when we come here Sunday after Sunday we sing songs like this Well, I could pick any one of them, I guess, but where's the one I want? Who the sun sets free. Oh, is did we sing that one? We did? Someone say something loud, so oh there it is. During the offering. Thank you. Who the sun sets free, oh is free indeed. I am a child of God. Yes, I am. Because we need to be reminded over and over again. Because we are so weak, we are so fickle, we are so insecure, so stinking insecure that when you go out to work on Monday and your boss says to you, man, you kind of blew it on that one, you want to crumble. And you want to say the sky is falling and oh no, what am I going to lose my job and why do I suck so much and you're going to want to beat yourself up or you're going to go home from church and you're going to get in an argument with your kid and you're going to have to say to your kid, no, this is how it's going to be. And your kid might say something stupid because that's what we do when we're kids and say, I hate you and walk into the room and slam the door. And as a parent, you're going to be like, oh man, my kid hates me. I'm such a terrible parent. Oh, 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 you want to beat yourself up for it. I mean, these are just two very possible here. Week after week after week, to be reminded of the gospel. You are saved by grace. Look at this man who had come so far, who had been so on top of the world, and yet was so empty. Look at this man transformed into someone who can apparently watch someone disappear right in front of him and not freak out and just go on his way rejoicing. Because the Son had set him free and he was free indeed. This message gripped the early church. And do that again because we are in a moment like this today again, friends.
we are. There are countless people outside these doors, in these neighborhoods, and in this community, and right next door to you, who they tell you life is good and things are fine, and they're going to bed every night wondering, am I good enough? Will I get there? What happens if this happens? I can't accomplish this. My life is so empty. They have these questions. So share your joy. Don't be obnoxious about it. But be truly Christian about it. Be humble about it and, and be amazed by it. You're a Christian. Why? I don't know. All I know is who the Son sets free, oh, is free indeed. I am a child of God. Yes, I am. Let's pray. Father, um, we're going to go to the table very soon, Father. You've fed us with your word, this story of, of this man so far from you. He was, he was physically far from you. He was so far from Jerusalem. He was culturally far from you. He was from North Africa. He was spiritually far from you. He was totally pagan. Um, and that story is true for any one of us who would just humble ourselves and admit that we're not who we want to be. We're not who we ought to be. But through Jesus Christ, we are your children. Father, feed us at the table. Nothing can separate us from you because we are your children. Adopted, loved, cherished. Do this, we pray in your son's name. Amen.